I want you to quietly picture something for me. You are walking in the woods at dusk. Blue twilight has settled cold on the forest, and the smell of decaying leaves fills your nostrils. Through the frozen air, you hear the voice of a child crying to your right. They scream for help. The sound echoes off the forest's chaotic jumble of bare branches. You pull back a tangle of bushes and squint into the dark spaces between the rows of silent trees. A figure moves quietly in the near distance. Tall, slender, and gaunt. Its deep-set, yellow eyes seem to glow as it fills the air with the smell of rot. You've just found yourself face to face with the Wendigo. Hello, and welcome to Nerd Roamer. This October, we're going to be covering a couple of topics that will raise the hair on the back of your neck. It's currently dark out, and I'm doing my best to record this episode as quickly as I possibly can so that I can get the heck out of my dark, creepy basement and back to the land of the living. As always at Nerd Roamer, we are the podcast that tries to make the world around you come alive. We cover the history, science, and cultural topics that can help turn every time you leave the house into a field trip. Check out nerdroamer.com for notes and bonus content for each episode, and find us on Instagram and Twitter for all your Nerd Roamer-related updates. Learn more about the world you explore. This is Nerd Roamer. Rome wisely. Today we are going to be talking about the history of the legend of the Wendigo. If you don't know a lot about this, that's just fine. You are going to be in for a treat, especially if you have any sort of interest in cryptids, Native American legends, general creepy Halloween stuff, not to mention just a general interest in North American history or Native American history or history of Minnesota, Wisconsin, Ontario, all the places where this legend stems from. I'm going to start out the episode by giving this little disclaimer or having this little discussion just about telling native stories. If you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I generally talk a lot about American history, and when I talk about American history, I really try to mix in as much native history as I possibly can. I find that native history often gets shortchanged when we talk about American history, especially when you're in school or in textbooks, even though native peoples were here first, and they were here for thousands of years before Europeans were. And on top of that, it's just really, really interesting history. There's some great stories there to talk about. I had initially started researching a different Native American legend for this episode. I had started researching the Skinwalker, but as I was doing my research, I uncovered that the Navajo do not really like sharing stories of the Skinwalker with non-Navajo people, out of respect for that, I decided to pivot to talking about the Wendigo because the Wendigo, while it originated with native peoples of Canada and the northern U.S., it's come to kind of transcend some cultural boundaries. You could argue that there's been a lot of cultural appropriation in the last century or so, and it's taken on having kind of a different meaning for different cultures that's changed over time. And that, in addition just to the legend itself, I think is kind of interesting, so I thought there'd be a lot to pick apart here. Where did the story of the Wendigo come from? So the story of the Wendigo, or the legend of the Wendigo, derives from the Algonquin peoples. So this cluster of peoples that speak Algonquin languages include the Ojibwe, the Cree, the Potawatomi, several other Native American nations that inhabit northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and then southern Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec. 
So these are those areas of the Great Lakes region that are characterized by these northern forests that are rich in pine and birch trees with lots of lakes and marshes. And the inland location predisposes the region to having really, really harsh winters with months of freezing temperatures and limited food supplies. It's a really, really tough place to live. Then when you throw on top of that the arrival of trappers, loggers, and other European settlers and their New World diseases, times in this already harsh environment became a lot harder around the 1600s or so. Access to normal food sources became disrupted, and communities of Native Americans became weakened by conditions like smallpox for which they didn't have any immunity whatsoever. The already harsh winters became absolutely devastating. The first written reports of something akin to the Wendigo come from Jesuit missionaries working in southern Canada in the 1600s. They compiled some letters in a French-language work entitled The Jesuit Relations, and in these letters at some point they described uh, basically behavior that sounds a lot like the legend of the Wendigo, as we'll talk about. So quoting from them, What caused us great concern was the news that met upon us upon entering the lake, that the men purposed with summoning the nations to the North Sea had met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men, according to the report given us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us, but not very unusual among the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with not quite lunacy, hypochondria, or frenzy, but with a combination of these things, which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men like veritable werewolves, and devour them voraciously, without being able to appease or glut their appetites, ever seeking fresh prey, and the more greedily, the more they eat. This ailment attacked these men, and as death is the sole remedy among these people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. It's unclear what form the stories of the Wendigo took prior to the arrival of Europeans, whether the legend itself developed around the time of the Europeans' arrival and was related to the harsher conditions, or if it had been a prominent fixture for a long time in Native culture before that. One thing's for certain, from the 1600s onward, it became quite well known to anyone, Native or not, who is living in these northern areas. So what is the legend of the Wendigo exactly? The legend itself varies from nation to nation. Remember, this is a little bit of a heterogeneous group of cultures that speak a similar language form, but all with distinct languages and cultures. So the legend varies a little bit, but there are some kind of overarching common themes. Even the exact name of the Wendigo can vary. It seems to derive from the Algonquin word for owl. So you can think of owls as being these nighttime creatures that also have this kind of association with murder or killing. In most of the legends, Wendigos generally start as humans. Anyone can become a Wendigo, which is one of the most horrifying aspects of the legend. The Wendigo is universally described as being gaunt and emaciated, and in some of the legends it's described as standing 10 to 15 feet tall or higher. Ojibwe scholar Basil Johnston notes, Its complexion is the ash gray of death. Its eyes pushed back deep into its sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Unclean and suffering from suppuration of the flesh, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and composition. It had the teeth of a dog, yellow eyes, 
no lips, and a long tongue. In some of the modern depictions, you will sometimes see the Wendigo with the head or the antlers of a deer. But classically, this didn't seem to sneak into a lot of these legends and wasn't commonly thought to be the case. This is more of a recent addition in popular culture like movies and video games. The Wendigo, once human itself, as we said, most of them started as humans, fed on human flesh, so it's cannibalistic. With every victim it consumed, it grew larger yet more emaciated. This is part of the curse of the Wendigo. The more it consumed, the more hungry and desperate for flesh it became. It was said to possess supernatural powers in that it could move silently at high speeds, walking along the tops of the trees. It could even mimic the voices of humans calling out for help in order to lure its victims into the woods alone. In others, it could mimic the appearance of a human in order to deceive its victims and lull them into a false sense of security. Individuals could become Wendigos in various different ways. For example, one could develop supernatural powers and an insatiable need for human flesh, it was thought, if one were to participate in cannibalism while starving. One could also become possessed by the evil spirit of the Wendigo by locking eyes with it if you saw it while walking in the forest alone, or even simply by dreaming of it at night. One legend of the Wendigo to share is that of the island of La Pointe. La Pointe Island is now known as Madeline Island in Wisconsin. So Madeline Island is this island that's off the coast of Bayfield, Wisconsin in Lake Superior. It's kind of by the Apostle Islands. In The History of the Ojibwe People, a book written in the 19th century, William Whipple Warren, who was a mixed Ojibwe French historian and legislator in the Minnesota House of Representatives, recounted the story of the Ojibwe people on La Pointe Island, which incidentally was where William Whipple Warren was born many, many years after this legend supposedly took place. So at one point, he relates, the Ojibwe occupied La Pointe Island in large numbers, with a settlement numbering up to 20,000 people. Then, Suddenly, the Ojibwe vanished from the island. Even in the 19th century, Warren admits the reasons for this were not immediately clear. One account asserts that the Ojibwe were able to obtain guns from European settlers and were able to use these to carve out more favorable territory from the Dakota, thus moving them off this cold, stinking island in the middle of Lake Superior. Older members of the tribe tell a different story, however, and the story that they tell is much, much darker and more sinister. William Whipple Warren recounts that elders from the community tell a story of an outbreak of Wendigoism that drove the Ojibwe from La Pointe. It said the evil spirit gained a foothold among them in the harsh winters on the rocky island. Mystics in the community had taken to poisoning children and women in particular, and then after they had died, and been interred, the mystics would go dig up their grave and hold feasts of their flesh. Such was their depravity that not only did the mystics, who were essentially the Wendigos in the story, eat the victims themselves, but they would summon the family of the deceased to partake in the feast. And if the family refused to eat their family member, these individuals would find themselves next on the list to be eaten by the Wendigo. Finally, as the story goes, one night, a parent of an only child whose daughter had just been a victim of the poisoner had had it. They had had enough. 
he silently hid near his daughter's grave. In the darkness of the night, he spied the form of a bear approach the grave. As in the tradition of this band of Ojibwe, it was thought that the Wendigos could shapeshift into different animals in order to avoid detection. The father of the deceased child believed this bear to be one of the mystics possessed by an evil spirit, and he shot a barbed arrow into its heart and then sprinted like the Dickens for his lodge to take cover. The next morning, the village came out in the light of day to discover the body of the mystic laying upon the child's grave, pierced by an arrow. While this would seem to point to a happy conclusion for the Ojibwe on La Pointe, the dark memories of the place were too much for them to bear. It was essentially haunted from that point on. It was said that you could hear a wailing at night, every night, that was said to have overtaken the entire island. And this was attributed to the souls of the victims crying out. The Ojibwe eventually abandoned the island and did not return for many years until after the French had established a trading post on the island and the signs of the old village site had disappeared. To this day, some Ojibwe still consider the island to be haunted or cursed. As time progressed, the question arose, rather than a mythical class of beasts, is Wendigoism really a manifestation of a mental health disorder? There are several well-documented cases of cannibalism among Native Americans of this region throughout history, throughout the 16, 17, 1800s. Was this more of a reflection of mental illness? Was this simply desperation from starvation or something supernatural? So as psychiatry established itself as a field of medicine and science, they started trying to categorize different mental health disorders. And one of the mental health disorders that's kind of snuck into the American Psychiatric Association handbook into the DSM, which is what they use to kind of define and categorize different disorders, is the term Wendigo psychosis defined essentially as being a pathologic desire for human flesh. So in the DSM-5, which is the most updated version of this, the disorder is characterized as a culture-specific psychiatric syndrome. And the APA defines Wendigo psychosis as a severe culture-bound syndrome occurring among northern Algonquin Indians living in Canada and the northeastern United States. The syndrome is characterized by delusions of becoming possessed by a flesh-eating monster, the Wendigo, and is manifested in symptoms including depression, violence, a compulsive desire for human flesh, and sometimes actual cannibalism. Characteristics suggestive of a diagnosis include cannibalistic thoughts outside the context of a famine situation, not normal, cannibalistic thoughts with regular food present, self-defining as a wendigo, threats to kill yourself or others, an internal sensation of coldness or freezing is very common among people who report symptoms of this psychosis. Requesting execution as punishment for cannibalistic thoughts or actions. The feeling of being possessed by an evil spirit. Anorexia or just not eating in general. And also just generally having other symptoms that are consistent with a manic or psychotic form of depression, which essentially... It seems that the psychiatrists view Wendigo psychosis as being a culturally specific manifestation of severe psychotic or manic depression, basically, is what I get from, from reading this DSM and looking at some of the other case definitions. In order to explore this idea of Wendigo psychosis, let's look at the case of Swift Runner. So Swift Runner is a very, very interesting case study. Swift Runner was a Cree Native American member of the Cree Nation, 
a Cree living near Fort Saskatchewan in the vicinity of modern-day Edmonton, Alberta in the late 1800s. Swift Runner departed to set up his winter camp in the fall of 1878 with his wife, his brother, his mother, and six children. In the spring of 1879, he staggered back into his father-in-law's camp, reporting that the rest of the group had starved to death or wandered off into the winter landscape. His father-in-law, finding this quite suspicious, I mean, that's a bunch of other people to go missing, wound up involving the police, who had Swift Runner lead them to his winter camp to show him what happened. In the first camp they'd set up, the intact emaciated body of one of his children was disinterred. They then went to the group's second camp, where they found Swift Runner's wife and the rest of his children's remains. However, they all had clear evidence of being cannibalized. They never did find his brother and his mother, and he told police that they had set out on their own, that they hadn't been part of this whole thing. It was quite obvious to the investigators that the group had been starving. After all, all of the bodies were quite emaciated. They all appeared to be starving to death. There were a couple of interesting observations, though. So one observation was that several of his children were close to adulthood, and it would have been pretty difficult for Swift Runner to overpower them all at once. So it seemed like it was probably unlikely that he had killed all of them at the same time, indicating that they had probably proceeded in a stepwise fashion to, as a group, cannibalize single victims from the group as they went on, leaving Swift Runner as the last man standing, so to speak. So that's kind of interesting. The other thing to consider is that the group was actually within about 25 miles of being saved. So they were 25 miles away from the nearest trading post, and other Cree in the area went on the record and actually gave depositions testifying that that 25 miles from their second winter camp to the trading post at Athabasca Landing, which is currently Athabasca, Alberta, right on the Athabasca River. That 25 miles was a distance that could have easily been traversed by anyone. It was over gentle terrain. Even in the harshest weeks of winter, they felt like that would be easily traversable, especially if, you know, say you had to do your first act of cannibalism, you, you ate somebody, you definitely would have had enough calories in your system to be able to make that journey to go get food. Eventually, Swift Runner confessed to cannibalism and was executed. As the Canadian authorities ruled that he was within easy enough reach of civilization and supplies, that his acts constituted murder. He did not need to kill to eat. He could have just gone to get help. So the Canadians considered him to be a murderer. The other Cree at the time considered him to be a Wendigo. And historians argue that he may have been suffering from the aforementioned Wendigo psychosis and that he may have developed some sort of psychotic depression that would have made him feel like he was compelled to eat his companions. The legend of the Wendigo has lived on into the 20th and 21st century. It was first popularized in widely read literature in a work by Algernon Blackwood, one of the first widely published works of fiction centered on the Wendigo in his novella creatively titled The Wendigo. This related the story of a hunting party in northern Ontario that was beset by the Wendigo and has inspired numerous spin-off stories and other works. Another famous novel to include a Wendigo is Pet Cemetery, the novel by Stephen King. This novel features a Wendigo as an evil spirit that orchestrates a curse that's been placed upon a cemetery for pets in a small town in the United States. In more recent years, there have been lots of kind of creepypasta, viral stories that have circulated on the internet involving the Wendigo. These have become really popular 
and have led to repopularization of the Wendigo in horror movies, in horror fiction, and in video games such as the award-winning title Until Dawn. It's kind of interesting to think about how the legend of the Wendigo has held so much sway about how it's had so much staying power and still captures people's imagination, still captures people's fear to this day. And I think that there are a number of different reasons for this. So I think probably around the time it started, the Wendigo was really a reflection, first and foremost, of native values. So it was this evil, malevolent force that lurked kind of out in the darkness, and it was evil and malevolent, and it was selfish and greedy and gluttonous. It reflected fear of becoming selfish, of turning your back on the community and thinking only of yourself when times got hard. If you are living in some sort of group, trying to get through a harsh winter, trying to get through a difficult circumstance, you know you're all going to have to work together in order to get through that. And there's nothing more frightening than thinking about someone hoarding all the resources for themselves, or even in a worst case scenario, maybe actually resorting to cannibalism in order to survive. So I think the story of the Wendigo is a way of kind of emphasizing the values of cooperation, of sacrifice, of selflessness, and vilifying greed, corruption, gluttony, and the like. I think also it became more popular around the arrival of the Europeans because it kind of reflects some of that European pressure that the Native American nations were feeling. Just as the Wendigo kind of lurks in the darkness and it's this hungry beast looking to chew you up and spit you out, so too the Europeans lived just beyond the horizon and the threat of their powerful armies kind of pushing into your area and taking over your territory would have been extremely frightening to consider. I think in the modern day, the Wendigo has a lot of staying power because the Wendigo itself can also serve as this kind of metaphor for corporate greed. It can kind of serve as this metaphor for societal greed. So it's this creature that basically doesn't value human life and chews it up and spits it out. And the more it consumes, kind of the bigger and hungrier it gets. And it just becomes this self-sustaining feedback cycle of destruction. And so I think that that's very frightening to people. I think that that kind of taps into some deep-seated fears about individuals feeling small in the face of large companies, governments, what have you. So I think that that's kind of like a primal fear that the Wendigo legend taps into. And also, I think you can see in, say, like the novels of Stephen King here, where the Wendigo puts this curse on this United States village, you know, on their this cemetery in this United States village. There's kind of this element of white guilt or this element of knowing that if you're out in the woods, you know, or even if you're in town, you know, you're kind of trespassing on land that once belonged to these native peoples. And this metaphor for the Wendigo kind of is this primal native presence that lies in the land and kind of hides in the darkness and is there and can't be eliminated and might come out at any time to take its revenge. I think that that also is like very powerful within the psyche of someone of European descent living in America. So I think that there's kind of two ways of looking at it. If you're a native person, in some ways the Wendigo could symbolize colonial greed. And then if you're a white person or someone of European descent now, the Wendigo is this kind of Native American dark mysterious legend that inhabits this land and is kind of beyond your understanding or ability to control when you've otherwise kind of managed to come in and subjugate this land and completely control it. So anyway, I think there's a lot of layers here. So I think that this was really, really interesting thing to read about and think about. If you want to read more about these cultures, 
there's not a lot of long nonfiction works that I could find directly about the Wendigo. But first of all, that book that I was talking about, History of the Jibway People by Warren, you know, it was written in the 1800s, but I was reading some of it and it's very readable. So I think if you have an interest in the Ojibwe people, that would be a good read. It's written by somebody who's part Ojibwe, so I think that there's definitely some authenticity there. And I, I don't know, I thought it was quite readable for something from the 1800s. And then Basil Johnston, I was reading a couple of short stories by Basil Johnston, and I thought that they were also really, really good. So I believe he passed away just a few years ago, but you can find some of his books uh, just by searching for him on Amazon or Google Books or something like that. And finally, if you want to read a creepy novella for Halloween, it's like some years I'll try to pick something creepy to read. You know, last year I think I read Macbeth in October. The year before that I read The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. If you're looking for something creepy to read this year, uh, the book The Wendigo by Algernon Blackwood. It's a novella. It's a quick read. I think if you ordered it now, you could probably finish it by Halloween. That would be a good read too. So I opened this episode by putting you face-to-face with the Wendigo. And I feel like it would be very rude for me to just leave you face-to-face with the Wendigo and not give you the tools you need to know how to defeat it. So to close out this episode, I'm going to leave you with a couple of practical tips in case you find yourself face-to-face with a Wendigo. As with many creatures, for whatever reason, they are particularly susceptible to silver. So a silver blade, a silver arrow, a silver bullet, you put that right through its icy little heart, and that should do the trick initially. But, kind of like crabgrass or a prosthetic joint infection, it's going to come back to haunt you if you don't go all scorched earth on it. After you kill it by putting something silver through its heart, you have to cut out its heart and then bury that in a silver box. And then, once you've done that, you have to cut up the rest of the Wendigo and burn the pieces individually and then scatter the ashes on the wind. This all sounds very time-consuming to me. So I would recommend budgeting at least a half a day for all this, and I do not recommend killing a Wendigo right before any sort of important meetings, appointments, flights to catch, etc., because you're probably going to miss it. So with all that being said, I want to thank you all for listening today. Thank you, thank you so much. If you really liked our podcast, you know, find us on your podcast app of choice, listen to some of our other episodes, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's always super helpful. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at NerdRomer. So we're just there at NerdRomer, and you'll get all your NerdRomer-related news and updates. Check out our website at NerdRomer.com. Sometimes we'll put some extra bonus content related to different episodes up there, like links to videos and that kind of thing. And all in all, I just hope that you enjoy listening. Send us your feedback. Send us any topics you want to hear more about or little tidbits you have to add or questions. I'll read any questions on air and we'll talk about them. And I just hope that every single one of you has a great October. Happy Halloween. And until next time, keep roaming, nerds.